Hey there, and welcome to the Oscars Death Face Podcast, where we try to watch all the Oscar-nominated movies or die trying. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Hope everyone's doing well out there. I'm recording this the evening of February 9th, uh, the end of my first week at my new job. Things are going well for me over there. Still ramping up, and super excited for the role. Um, as far as this death race goes, you know, I have been mostly able to keep up with the films I need to watch. I'm maybe one behind where I'd like to be as of this episode coming out, but I do have the weekend to give me a chance to at least catch up. Um, last episode, we talked about the above-the-line films and live action sorts. This week, we're going to turn to the below-the-line films and categories that I've completed. Before that, though, some updates about the film, uh, le- film legally available, uh, the legal film availability of certain hard-to-find films in the death race. Uh, first up, Godzilla Minus One has ended its domestic run and is unfortunately no longer in theaters. I hope you were able to catch it while it was still in theaters because uh, we don't have any news from uh, Toho about when it will be available on digital. Uh, meanwhile, uh, if you haven't seen Perfect Days yet, um, I believe it's starting its limited rollout. Um, I, it opened here in New York City at the AMC Lincoln Center last weekend and the Angelica. Obviously, that's not everywhere, but I am seeing you know, on Fandango that it's going to be coming to other major cities around the 22nd or so. Um, definitely, you know, obviously, you're in the death phase. You're going to go see it, but it is one of my favorites of the year. And if you can see it in theaters, I think it's a really great experience. Uh, to Kill a Tiger is starting to roll out to select art house theaters online, uh, um, based on what it was seeing online. Um, I myself will be going to see it at the Quad Cinema here in New York this coming Saturday, but there are also screenings listed between now and the end of the month on to- in Toronto, D.C., Chicago, uh, Detroit, San Francisco, uh, Atlanta, Boston, Scottsdale, Arizona, Denver, Los Angeles, Dallas, Wilmington, Delaware, and Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, Il Capitano will start its rollout on the 23rd. Uh, there are 13 theaters listed on their site uh, starting this coming week, starting that weekend of the 23rd. Uh, Los Angeles, Dallas, Bethesda, Maryland, West Hollywood, Chicago, D.C., Cambridge, Portland, Oregon, Atlanta, San Francisco, Philly, New York, which will you know be at the Quad Cinema once again, uh, and Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, on the 1st of March, it actually going, is going to expand out to San Diego, Fairfax, uh, Plano, uh, Huntington, New York, uh, and Columbus, Ohio. And then on the Oscars weekend, so the 8th of March, it will be coming to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, uh, Omaha, Honolulu, Minneapolis, Santa Barbara, Rockport, Sacramento, and Santa Fe. Now, the probably the biggest disappointment uh, of the race so far is that Robot Dreams is actually going to not be coming to theaters before the Oscars. In fact, Neon has stated they're going to have the wide theatrical release coming on May 31st, which is kind of insane, well after the Oscar ceremony. Uh, the last time a nominated animated film took so long to get to come out was back in 2012. Now, that being said, for anyone looking to see it in a theater, uh, before op- um, they are, there are some theaters around uh, in select cities that are opting into a one-day-only screening. Unfortunately, there isn't a central site that has them all listed, but Friend of the Show Red Carpet Rosters has a post on the Oscars Death Race subreddit listing all the screenings he's found. As of the recording of the episode, these include Long Beach, California, Laguna Niguel, California, San Rafael, California, Santa Cruz, California, um, Stamford and Bantam, California, Connecticut, Washington, D.C., Maitland, Florida, Atlanta, Georgia, 
Chicago, Illinois, Louisville, Kentucky, Brookline, Massachusetts, Minneapolis, uh, Kansas City, Missouri, um, Omaha, Nebraska, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Portland, Oregon, and Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. Uh, in addition, the New York Air National Children's Festival, uh, Film Festival uh, will have two screenings of the film on March 2nd and March 10th. Um, and finally, the American Cinematheque, which is a theater chain, uh, has, has two screenings scheduled um, on the one in LA, one in Santa Monica, which actually has a Q&A with the director, Pablo Berger, that will be next weekend on February 17th and 18th. Uh, and then finally, you know, some uh, films coming out. Um, Nai Nai and Waipor is coming to Disney Plus uh, actually today as I record this uh, for the Lunar New Year. So that's, you know, I, I believe one of the last documentary sorts that uh, was not yet available online. Um, now, obviously, this is all legal availability. You know, there are there are rumors of of uh, you know uh, versions of these floating around online. Uh, officially, I'm not going to say tell you where to find these, but if you know where to look, uh, they may or may not be available. Uh, moving on from movie availability, there's actually some exciting Oscar news. Uh, nothing that impacts this year's race or even next year's, but for the first time in over 20 years, we have a brand new category being added to the mix. Uh, casting directors will now be honored with a new category starting in the 2026 Oscars for Best Casting. Definitely excited to see how this pans out. You know, um, will this fail? Will this favor? You know, the more larger ensembles of well-known actors, a la a Wes Anderson film, uh, or will it perhaps favor casting directors who are able to find brand new talent who which you know kind of like the new up-and-coming newcomers um especially if the oscars aren't uh, uh likely to you know honor brand new actors uh, at with their own individual awards uh will the, this be mostly going to films that are you know, already you know kind of like the oppenheimers of the race getting a lot of the a lot of nominations or will it be more of films that you know, kind of have their own standalone uh, uh such as the some tech specific categories might tend to be um we also you know, will need to start looking at which precursors are good indicators for these awards to try to predict things and of course also this is going to you know for anyone participating in any uh nomination or prediction contest adds a whole new category and ups the total from 120, 120 nominations up to 125. Um, and who knows, maybe I'd extend the death race by a couple more films. Anyway, looking at this year's race, I am currently at 32 out of 53 films, uh, 27 out of 32 features, 5 out of 15 sorts. Uh, by my count, that should be about 93 out of 120 total nominations and 15 out of 23 categories completed. Um, I was hoping to get one more film in uh, by this episode, but alas, I needed to figure out the whole work-life balance thing still. Um, these numbers are pretty good enough for 218 out of 987 on OscarsDeathRace.com, which actually is losing ground to people. I was 170 last week. Uh, and then 133 out of 508 on Death Race tracking. Again, sliding from last week's uh, 111 place. Um, I think part of this is because, you know, again, copies of certain hard-to-find films have made their way online, leading to more people finishing their races. Last week, we had six on OscarsDeathRace.com, eight on Death Race tracking. Now we're up to 28 on OscarsDeathRace.com and 23 on Death Race tracking. So, as is usual, congratulations to the following people who completed their race. Um, if you were mentioned twice across both uh, nominate, um uh, uh, websites. Uh, I'm going to only mention your name once, and hopefully I didn't miss anyone um, or mistakenly mistake somebody as as being the same person twice. But in any case, congratulations to Kath Lizzle, Ardago, Alicia, Natalone, Sebado, Jeff183, uh, um, Nathan Cole, Adam A., Cast for Tuit, Juggernaut, Dice Packets, El Roberino, Mac Mac Mac, uh, El Cobalto, uh, Tarlin, Bat of Zion, Gaspacho Machine, uh, Unclear, 
Agwajag, the Elk, uh, Austrian Alpaca, uh, Ayakovus Jam, a- uh, Amio 92, Tarlin, Mark 820, JJBJR, Enya Survivor, uh, Amarantalila, uh, and Sebastian Bertrand. Congratulates to everyone for, fin- for to finishing your death races. You know, definitely got a bit of a head. You know, still still a decent time before the Oscar ceremony, and hopefully, I'll be joining you. You know, sooner rather than later. Now, turning to the specific films that we're going to be covering on this year's race, or this week's episode, rather. As noted, this week I'm going to focus on the films in the below the line categories. Uh, notably, I'm going to skip international uh, animated and documentary films. Those will all have their own specific episodes in the future. I also skipped song, even though it technically is in the below the line category, since I always save you know the song only nominees uh, for the last couple of films I watched in the race. Um, thank you, Diane Warren. Uh, so here we're going to be looking at editing, production, costume, sound visual effects and score um, I also planned to have a, a cinematography here but unfortunately wasn't get, get able to get around to watching El Conde um, also since I skipped the international films this week um, even if I did watch Golda for makeup and hair I won't while I will talk about Golda I won't give predictions for that category till I uh, watch Society of Snow so first up, uh, a category prediction for a film that even uh, uh, even if it is a below-the-line uh, category, um, is made of films that are all nominated for Best Picture, and which we've already talked about, which is editing. Um, so the nominees are Anatomy of a Fall, The Holdovers, Kills the Flower Moon, uh, Oppenheimer, and Poor Things. Um, you know, this one, I think, is pretty straightforward. It is, uh, I think it should be Oppenheimer because of, you know, it was able to get a three-hour film uh, to feel like on the edge of the seat. What more uh, a film that didn't quite have as much action, you know. On I, I, uh, and, and I think it will be Oppenheimer. Now that being said, I actually don't think any of these, except perhaps Holdovers, would be unworthy of the nomination here. Um, if I had to stack rank these, I'd probably put Oppenheimer first, Kills of the Flower Moon second, Anatomy third, Poor Things fourth, and then fifth uh, Holdovers. All right, moving on to films I haven't yet talked about on the podcast. First up, let's do the first below the line film that has three nominations, two in categories that are basically it, plus the be- the big four Best Picture nominees uh, of Op- of Barbenheimer, Poor Things, and Flower Moon. Uh, we have Napoleon. Um, this epic historical drama was directed by Ridley Scott and stars Joaquin Phoenix about the famous uh, French emperor. Uh, this two and a half hour film from Sony slash Apple TV Plus follows the rise and fall of Napoleon Bonaparte uh, and in particular focuses on his relationship with Josephine, played by Vanessa Kirby, though, of course, there is the requisite amount of uh, war battles uh, going on. It released in the U.S. on November 22nd, and a full four-hour cut uh, will apparently come to a later date to streaming on Apple TV+. It was nominated for Costume, uh, led by longtime uh, Ridley collaborator John T. Yates, as well as David Crossman. Uh, production dine, designed by longtime Ridley collaborator Arthur Max, and Visual Effects. Um, now, I saw Napoleon actually over the Thanksgiving break. Uh, my parents wanted to see something over Thanksgiving break. I didn't think taking them to see Saltburn would be a good idea. So, um, yeah, we ended up watching Napoleon. Um, and at the time when I watched it, I think... It had some interesting things in here, right? I mean, there's been a lot of criticism about Napoleon not being the most, you know, historically accurate films. I think, you know, this is kind of like Ridley Scott wanting to make an epic and just make a movie, even if it's not necessarily the most historically accurate, which there is some criticism that can be had at that. Um, that being said, I still think for his whatever flaws he may have as a screenwriter, I don't think you can take away, and, and I, I don't think you can really take away from uh, Ridley Scott's. Um, you know, filmmaking just on a technical level, which obviously the three nominations here um, 
are able to do. Like the fact that he's, he's able to rally and get the resources to make put on these giant battle sequences, which you know, looking at which granted, you know, looking at some of the uh visual effects reels uh, for, you know, looking for the nominees here. Um, the fact that, you know, they actually didn't have as many actors as it looked on screen. A lot of them were actually CG, but it, that just looked really good and it didn't wasn't super obvious, like, say, in a Marvel film or what whatnot. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, just, you know, getting the production, getting the costumes, getting, um, you know, just having these giant sets, this this vision to try to create a war epic was, uh, um, was is impressive in and of itself. Um, you know, I think the fact that there, this is a two and a half hour version of what presumably is a four hour story that really Scott wanted to tell, particularly of the relationship between uh, Josephine and Napoleon, um, probably did a, the film a disservice. I think, you know, there's probably a lot more interesting stuff in here, better informing of of the character of both Napoleon and Josephine, um, it, from the stuff that I believe was probably cut on the on the bedroom on the uh, cutting room floor to get this theatrical version out. Um, but you know, even then, I think it's just like the bombast of it of the whole thing is just like a, a, a sight to behold on the big screen. Now, it did probably run two hour, a half hour longer than it really stood for this kind of thing. Again, the pacing and the awkward cutting of the uh, the relationship didn't really help per, per, so much. But you know, when the when you get to the you know the the, the parts that really shine, I think are obviously the battle sequences, um, which you know I think you know there's the invasion of Russia, which is which is always great. Um, there's you know the Battle of Waterloo, which is which was amazing as well. The initial um, you know seeds uh, during the French Revolution, you know taking of the castle was was also a great sequence as well i mean all of those things were just wow like that's where where these these kind of films really shine uh as well and you know i i, I did actually have that that you know i think i thought you know i earlier on in the race um i thought there was a chance that napoleon hey might be able to be, get in the best picture just off of the pure technical elements i mean if you think about it this does have you know i've talked about before a path to the best picture is having three below the line nominations even if you have no above the line ones and you know technically this could have been a best picture contender in that regard um you know, probably did it have everything that it needed to, like, it, it unfortunately didn't have, like, the reviews to get there, um, and, you know, again, this could have been, I think, like, a more better sort of miniseries than a full movie, perhaps, um, but, you know, I think uh, for what it got nominated for, I think it was well-deserving, um, and I'm definitely not mad to see it in here. Um, so, yeah, overall, I gave Napoleon probably, like, two out of five stars, you know, it was a little bit messy on the film, I, I can't really say I would recommend you watch it, Um you know, if you have other things to be doing instead, just partly because of the length, I think. Um, but there are definitely some amazing quotes in here. Um, you know, pork chops, roast, well, pork chops or roast beef, whatever it is, or um, you think you're so great because you have boats. Um, yeah, those are just some great lines from the film, which, you know, still stick in my head. Um, now, as far as nominations go for production and costumes, again, um, both of these categories uh, are made up of Barbie, Flower Moon, Napoleon, Oppenheimer, and Poor Things. And I think, honestly, like, even though Napoleon is here and I'm glad I got nominated, um, it has no chance in winning. I think Barbie, you know, for despite the snubs in the above-the-line nominations, and actually I don't think it'll actually win anything uh, in the above-the-line categories, I think Barbie will get two, two, the, the two wins for these, right? Um, Barbie's, Barbie's production design has been talked about to death, um, just like the set construction. Like, obviously there is set construction, and then there's Barbie set construction, which literally recreates a toy in life-size and drives up the amount of pink paint in the world, right? Um and then, uh, and then, as far as costume, I think you know Barbie again, fashion icon for both men and women uh, with the Kens. Um, I think its costume 
design is going to definitely get a lot of love as well. Now, I will say honorable mention to these probably for me, you know, would probably go to poor things. Um, you know, I think the costumes that Bella wears over the course of the movie really is part of sewing her development as a character um and then you know the same thing for the uh production right the fact that you you have these mythical versions of the sets of these like of of the different cities um sorry those visual effects get thrown in there as well to help but i think that definitely does a lot as well so i would say for both these categories probably prefer uh, would predict barbie but i would love to see a poor things sneak a win in here here or there um and then you know i as far as what i could have been in here i mean i would have loved to see um probably asteroid city in 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 production you know just to get that a little bit of something as well um and then Oppenheimer, you know, in I, I actually wouldn't have Oppenheimer in either of these categories. I think that was probably like the least interesting uh, of the of the of the five uh, in this cat in these categories. But you know, it kind of like rising tide lifted all boats. Um, for costume, I would have probably replaced Oppenheimer uh, with Wonka, perhaps. Um, but or 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 the color purple, I think, um, just for you know the what what those costumes do in the musical setting and being able to be expressive but also uh, danceable. Uh, anyway, some more VFX nominees. So that's Napoleon. Uh, there are a couple of, you know, it was also nominated for visual effects before we can talk about those. Let's talk about some more visual effects nominees. And let's, why not we go to the two that also got sound nominations? Uh, so first up, we had The Creator, which is a science fiction action film directed by Gareth Edwards and starring David Washington and Gemma Chan, uh, which is set in the year 2070 and, you know, is during a war between, you know, the West, um, which, you know, is against the development, you know, after an attack on L.A., presumably by artificial intelligence, um, you know, the West has declared war on all forms of AI life forms. Um, meanwhile, you know, the East Asia has has adopted, you know, living alongside, you know, AI um, you know, in the form of robots and androids. Um, and so it's the kind of this conflict between the two, which, you know, the, the central point is trying to find, quote unquote, the creator um, of the AI. Um, it debuted September 29th uh, and was nominated for visual effects and sound. So I saw the creator in theaters, you know, shortly after it came out. I forget if it was actually released weekend or maybe the week after. Um, first off, I'm not always going to root for a good sci-fi film. I think, you know, that's sadly a, a category that even outside the Oscars, you know, unless you're a franchise film, Science fiction just doesn't really get a lot of love anymore in movie going, and it's hard, you know. Granted, it is hard to get audiences really into, you know, non-IP science fiction, which is the same because I think science fiction really is a place where you can explore. You know, science fiction is always, for me, has always been, and, and for many people, is an uh, uh, exploration of the now through, you know, a what if of the future, right? You, you, it looks like it's set in the future, but it's really it's commentating on the current. And obviously, with the rise of AI and people's thoughts about that, you know, that's obviously part of it. Again, it's been a while since I've seen it, so you know, I definitely had a, I probably a little bit more coherent thoughts when I first saw it. That being said, you know, what I do remember is that it kind of like the plot felt kind of MacGuffin-y of like, oh, let's go, let's let's bring, you know, this character from A to B, point A to B, and then it goes up to MacGuffin C and so on and so forth, and 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 plot contrivances necessitate action sequences. It didn't really quite get to the depth of the um, philosophical that I would like to do. It, it kind of touches on these ideas, but doesn't really dig, dive deeply into any one of them. Um, so, you know, it was, it's, it's nothing we haven't really seen before in terms of, you know, science fiction which is the same um i think the real interesting thing here and obviously this is why i got nominated is the visual effects right for a budget of 80 million dollars to get visual effects that look as good if not better than anything a 200 million dollar marvel film will do um is 
outstanding, right? Um, and and this could lead to a way, change to the way that folks here in the West do AI uh, or not AI visual effects um, as well to to make to, on, on a budget, right? Which is kind of like every studio exec's team. Even if you know this wasn't necessarily the most financially successful film, um, it will at the very least probably break even just because of its reduced budget um, compared to the Marvel films. Um, sound, um, I will admit, the sound isn't what I really think of when I think of this film. Um, but looking back, I can definitely see it, you know, with, you know, the sound uh, the sound effects that, that come with this being a little bit more of an accent-heavy film. You know, probably would have expected Ferrari in here instead, but this kind of takes that slot of, like, you know, heavy accent um, of, of engaging you in the, uh, in the in the environment through, you know, the bang, 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 right? Um, yeah. Overall, I think the creator, you know, there is one point in the film where, okay, it's a nice little clever nod to the Isaac Asimov uh, laws of robotics, which was nice, but um, I just wanted to mention that that's probably like the, the best twist that I saw um, but uh, in the film, but I would say, hmm. Uh, I think I probably gave this one a three out of five overall. It's a well enough time, well enough, I think, use of your time to go see it. It's interesting, especially if you like science fiction. I think maybe if you're not into science fiction, maybe like a, a star less, um, just to, to tailor my recommendations to you. But again, I don't find the, the creator being here. I'm, and for what it means for the future of, of visual effects, I'm very happy of that. Um, the other film, right, that both got both a visual effects and sound nomination uh, was uh, Mission Impossible 7. Um, now, Mission Impossible 7 is, of course, uh, the latest Tom Cruise-led uh, uh, film in the in the MI franchise. Ironically enough, uh, this time it's also about Ethan Hunt facing off against an AI threat. Um, this one released July 12th, but unfortunately due to it coming out only a week before Barbenheimer ended up not doing quite as well financially as they would have hoped. Um, in fact, they ended up dropping the part one, Dead Reckoning part one um, tag from here when they released it on digital and they're reworking the sequel um, I think so. Uh, in any case, as with the, the creator, it is nominated for both visual effects and sound. Um, so again, I, I, I mean, it's a Mission Impossible film, right? I haven't, I can't say I've seen literally every Mission Impossible film uh, ever come out. Um, you know, I vaguely remember watching like MI two or maybe MI three at my uh, aunt's place when I was much younger. Um, but uh, you know, I definitely have seen the ones like probably the last three or four, and they're always a good time, right? Um, you know, it's it's again. These films are are really less about being a good commentary film, being a big, um, a, a you know coherent story per se, and really just an excuse to get Tom Cruise into. They they they, they talked about it. They basically come up with the stunts that they want to do, and then they end up directing the film tour, and then they end up directing writing the plot to as a way to get Tom Cruise and, and crew from point A to point B, where point A and point B are the next big stunts he needs to do for the film. Um, the set pieces, right? Um, and obviously, right, like I watched the visual effects, again, watched the visual effects wheel for this one. Pretty impressive for that, you know, some of the stuff that, you know, I mean, they basically did some stuff, you know, uh, some stuff they did like kind of like on set and there's definitely an amount of physicality and stunt work that goes in here which speaking of you know the casting directors getting a, a nominee a, nom a category waiting for the stunt performers to get a uh, in choreography to get a, a category as well um, definitely this would definitely be a shoe in for any stunt uh uh, category. Um, that being said, you know the visual effects definitely supplement that as well as the practical stuff. So can't really blame there. Um, again, I think similar to the creator, the uh, the sound didn't really stick out to me in here at particularly at all. Um, so I can see why it got nominated. It's not my favorite choice, um, but it is what it is. Um, 
you know, I mean, I can't really say much more. It's a Mission Impossible film. It's a good time. It's not the biggest, you know, thriller of the world of the world out there. It's a competently made film. It's an enjoyable way to see Tom Cruise do death defying stunts on the big screen. Honestly, I probably like the last couple of Mission Impossible films a little bit more than the stunts they had here. Um, but yeah, again, it is what it is. So I gave this one a three out of three out of five as well. Um, with that, uh, we've talked about all of the uh, sound nominees. So, you know, my predictions here, we have The Creator, Maestro, Mission Impossible 7, Oppenheimer, and Zone of Interest. Um, I think it should be Zone of Interest. You know, I think you can argue that, oh, the fact that it's actually sound direct, it's direction as opposed to sound editing, it makes a difference. But I really think the more it's going to come out, I think more and more people are going to say that, oh, it's the sound just has, like, kind of in the similar way that, um, you know, Sound of Mental um, won there because of the... Um, because of like the impact that the sound or lack thereof had, I think the way that the sound is used in this film really makes a difference for um, for Zone of Interest. And I'm actually going to go ahead and be so bold as to say it will win uh, sound production. This might be my hot take. Um, that being said, you know this would be a, a continued break. You know we've always seen that sound and editing kind of go hand in hand. And as you as you remember earlier in the episode, I said that Oppenheim would probably win uh, for editing. But I'm going to go ahead and say it's going to split like I did last year between a uh, you know. Um, Tom, uh, um, uh, Top Gun and Everything Everywhere. Similarly, we're going to have Zone and Oppenheimer splitting sound and editing. All right, let's go ahead and wrap up the last couple of visual effects nominees. Um, Guardians of the Galaxy 3 is the uh, final part of the Guardians of the Galaxy trilogy from the MCU, directed by James Gunn, released on May 5th, and was probably the only successful comic book movie of the year. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, the film uh, f- this is the first film I watched for the Death Race. Um, you know, it, there was you know, even before we knew that the comic book films was going to collapse, I had a feeling that you know of the Marvel films, if there was one to get a get a nomination, I think. I figured it would be this one. Um, and of course, it got nominated only for visual effects, though, if you ask me, it definitely should have been in for uh, hair and makeup because um, they literally set a Guinness World Record for how many hair prosthetics uh, they put on on the, on the crew. So yeah, it is what it is. Um, Guardians of the Galaxy 3. I can't really be objective about Guardians of the Galaxy uh, at, at all. Um, it is my favorite film of the MCU universe. Uh, it's a I believe the first or second one is in my Leatherbox Top 4. Um, I collect Groot figurines. I mean, you know, it's it's just... This is what I love about... I, this, this, this exemplifies what the MCU can be, and unfortunately, what the MCU isn't, right? Um, when you take these properties, these like as of Marvel, right? Um, and we take these D, literally these were D-list characters before James Gunn took a hold of them. Um, but he had this clear vision, this clear story he wanted to tell with these characters. Um, and you know, you have this, you have this authorial uh, imprint on the film, and you really can see what that author's style and substance is going into the film. Um, yeah, I mean that's what that's why we've had three successful films, and that's why he got posts to to go be at DC. Um, and then, you know, as opposed to kind of like the cookie cutter machines of other Marvel films, which basically they know the story they want to do. They basically bring in the director who more or less will just be like a studio style, even if they do have an authorial intent. Hard to really make a really good film that, that complements the two. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a miracle that that we've gotten three great Guardians of the Galaxy films, um, you know. And, yeah, I just love I love this film so much. Um, you know, I would lo- like 
Guardians of the Galaxy is the one of the only films I've gone, or the second one is one of the only ones I've ever gone back to see twice in theater. So I rarely ever do that. Um, and again, visual effects. I mean, you know, what what more is to say there? I mean, it's a visual visual spectacle for the treat for the eyes. Um, you know, this I think is almost kind of like a way to honor James Gunn and the Guardians uh, franchise, since obviously being at DC, we won't really know where whether we're going to get them back at all again in the future. I mean, many of the actresses said they're not going to reprise their role if it's not James Gunn directing. So. Yeah, I mean, sign off to the Guardians. Um, definitely enjoyed the one of the films we got with them. Definitely a heartfelt film, also as well. Um, which again, I think is is a is a fitting send off for the for the crew. So, um, I don't know I probably am not going to watch another Marvel movie unless. Uh, except for Deadpool three, which I think has a similar vibe to it. Um, and then Shang Chi two, when and if ever that happens again. But yeah, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. I mean, I gave it five stars, but that's just my bias sewing through. Finally, we have Godzilla Minus One, directed by Takashi Yamazaki. This latest Godzilla film, set separately from the Godzilla vs. Kong monsterverse from the Americas, um, tells the story of the original kaiju himself, set in the aftermath of World War II. It follows the, the human story it follows is that of a kamikaze pilot who survives the war and is trying to move past his survivor's guilt. It debuted in Japan in October uh, but to celebrate the franchise's 70th anniversary and released in the U.S. on December 1st. It is the most financially successful Japanese Godzilla film, uh, it is also the first Godzilla film ever nominated for the Oscars and the first Japanese film nominated in the visual effects category. It also had a black and white version released in the U.S., Godzilla Minus One, Minus Color, January 26th. So, I, ever since seen Godzilla, so I can't say I've seen every Godzilla film, right? But, I mean, this is something, I one of my first toys growing up was just like this plastic Godzilla. I think I have it somewhere here uh in my yeah it's i have it i have it on the uh, on on the shelf behind me so you know i can't say i've seen every godzilla film but there's just something primal about it and i love the fact that godzilla films can be both kind of like the somewhat brain dead mass 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 uh buildings and and spectacle um and, and just the power of nature you know kind of like the american films are but at the same time right you also have this more uh you know it, it's always had been rooted in social commentary right commentary on you know the Jap japan's relationship to the atom bomb after world war ii of course um japan's uh you know the hubris of man to try to control nature of of what happens when when mankind pollutes nature right Right, in some of the older Godzilla films, and then you know, in more recent films, we had Sin Godzilla from Hideaki Anno about you know as a as Godzilla as a stand-in as a satire for um, you know the bureaucratic inability of Japan to respond to um, to the disasters. Right, obviously the Tohoku tsunami and earthquake kind of come to mind here. Um, here, this is like a very, probably the most personal Godzilla has been, right? In my mind, watching and again, spoilers here. Um, Godzilla here, I think, represents you know. Um, guilt, right? Like we mentioned, survivor's guilt it, it, and, and trauma, right? And um, this Japanese pilot, you know, who faces who faces trauma after um, after World War II, and, and broadly Japan as a whole facing trauma, right? After World War II, not necessarily specifically of the atom kind, but just kind of like of the devastation facing the country. And then, you know, what the question is: What do we do to overcome this that has come back to to, to face us? Do we rely on the government, who seems to be useless, or is it the ingenuity of the common man coming together? And they have to directly face this trauma head on. They can't run away from it. They can't hide from it. They have to take it face on to be ordered in order to move on with their lives. And that's basically what the film is. It's a very personal story. You know, one of the critiques of the American films is that, you know, we want to have a great 
smash smash monster film, but at the same time, you need it to be grounded in the in the human story. And they've never really quite gotten the human story just quite right for the uh, for the American films just yet. So um, this is one that really does that really well. I mean, as far as visual effects go, I, I mentioned it's amazing that the creator was able to get it, uh, that good visual effects for eighty million dollars. Uh, here they got it for fifteen million dollars, right? Which is even more insane. Um, I mean, part of that is the fact that the director is a visual effects uh, supervisor um, in, in for most of his career, so he kind of knows how to compose shots and and have a workflow that really uh, supplements, you know, makes it makes it easier and and more cost effective uh, to do uh, visual effects. You know, there is some debate about whether or not the working conditions in Japan, you know, crunch time, um, you know, you know, the fact that, you know, uh, visual effects people kind of pull all night, all nighters for crunch and it's kind of just socially accepted to do that in a similar way to say, for example, anime animators are kind of underpaid. Um, so the salary of a visual effects artist in Japan might be less than the salary of a visual effects artist in the U.S. I mean, that's a whole other debate, but can't be denied that there is, you know, some technical craft here that is really well done. Um I would probably would give it a five out of five. I think in the moment when I rated it in uh, Letterbox, I gave it a four out of five, partly for narrative reasons. Um, you know, spoilers. Essentially, you know, there is uh, a girl that the main character meets throughout. At some point, she supposedly dies in the middle of the film, and then at the end of the film, literally like the last thirty seconds, she somehow is found. They she's get they get the guy gets a call, and oh my god, she's alive in the hospital, and it ends there. And I mean. I get narratively that it's supposed to be, oh, see, like once he's faced his trauma and faced Godzilla head on and come out on top, that he can now go on and live with his life, which includes being with this woman who he loves. On the other hand, it felt kind of like a narrative out of nowhere, which was kind of unsatisfying. I think objectively, I'd probably give it a five out of five, but I kind of annoy me enough, I only gave it a four out of five. But still, you know, definitely will, definitely one of my top films of the year last year. So as far as predictions go, um, you know, again, the nominees, uh, we just talked about them all in this episode. Uh, we had Napoleon, uh, we had Crater, Miss Impossible 7, Guardians of the Galaxy, and Godzilla Minus One. I think it should, and I think it probably will be Godzilla Minus One. I think this is going to be a similar case to um, Natu Natu from RRR last year. You know, it's a small foreign film that kind of, you know, has broken out into the Western mainstream. You know, Godzilla Minus One is one of those films where, like, people, even if you're not normally Godzilla people, like, oh, go see Godzilla. And it's, again, like I said, it's been the most financially successful Godzilla film uh, from Japan, um, you know, uh, ever. Um, and so I think, uh, including the overseas. So I think that's definitely in its favor. You know, it's people have seen the people really in enjoy it it's kind of like a almost like a legacy award again for the entire franchise at this point like hey this is Godzilla let's recognize you what you've done for just movies in general this is a great place to do it so I'm going to go ahead and say it should and will win now okay those are all the films I actually saw before uh, I saw before the nominations came out um, let's go to the film I watched in the last couple of weeks again it was only two in this last couple of weeks uh, first up we have a nominee for score uh, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is the fifth entry in this franchise uh, this time directed by James Mangold uh, with a score by of course John Williams which you know the film was nominated for extending Williams record for the most nominations of a living person up to 54 as well as the oldest competitive nominee at 93 um, the film was set in 1969. Look, follows Indiana Jones as he chases the titular MacGuffin alongside his goddaughter, played uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridges, and races against uh, a former Nazi, played by Mads Mikkelsen, to get this, you know, MacGuffin, uh, Dial of Destiny. It premiered out of competition at Cannes and released in the U.S. on June 30th. Uh, generally, it's considered a box office flop due to its very large budget and not super great reviews. So 
overall, right, I mean, I watched all the Indiana Jones films a couple years ago when I was trying to watch through most of the early Spielberg films. Um, and I mean, the best I can say here, it's better than the Crystal Skull, which I remember seeing much younger and was kind of weirded out by. Um, it doesn't quite get, it does, definitely does not get to the heights of the other films, right? I think part of the problem with this particular film is that um, it basically, it does, it's just not paced as well, right? I think, you know, if you think about Indiana Jones films, they are, you know, similar, almost similar to Miss Impossible, a couple of set pieces, right? And you go from one to the other, right? Um, and the film kind of is a way to get there. And, you know, a critique of the Indiana Jones films is really, if you look at any of the films, Indiana Jones doesn't really do that much to actually get stuff done. Well, okay, lie. He does kind of get some stuff done um, in, I, I guess, Temple of Doom. But for the most part, right, he kind of goes through the thing. But the Nazis, but the the bad guys who are always Nazis, uh, probably would have ended up finding a way to get the uh, the, get to the MacGuffin anyway and ended up self-destructing themselves from their hubris, right? And this kind of follows that. So in that sense, right, like that, maybe that's a critique of the film, but at the same time, that's kind of Indiana Jones' whole thing, right? He's almost, again... Uh, uh, in, in some senses, he's a proxy for the audience, at the same time being his own fleshed-out character played by Harrison Ford masterfully, of course, right? Um, at first, I wasn't really super sold on this film thematically, right? Like It just kind of felt like an excuse to get from um, set piece to set piece, and I think to this film's detriment that, you know, normally Indiana Jones films run maybe just under or maybe it's a little bit over two hours. Um, you know, ideally, I would say a, a good Indiana Jones film probably is, is something like 110 minutes or something like that, right? This one stretches on for two and a half hours, which really just extends the runtime and the pacing of getting the getting the act to the action and between the action is just so slowed down, right? Um, so I think that kind of hurts this film in overall. Um, that being said, right, I wasn't really sold on the film as a narrative piece until I listened to a review by uh, NPR's Planet Money about um, the film and they kind of brought up, you know, this is kind of cleverly done, right? I mean, James Mangold has done, you know, Ford versus Ferrari, the Logan's film, right? And um, his thing is, you know, looking at the, taking these properties and, you know, looking back at kind of like their legacy almost, right? And here, right, Indiana Jones, I mean, it's chronologically, he's at, he's retiring and it's kind of like, okay, well, what does he do? What is his, what is his, his coming to terms with what his life has been, basically? Um, and, uh, you know, maybe it didn't quite come across to people who saw it initially and, you know, I think, but, you know, for example, I, I really, you know, the fact that Seal, like, they, Seal LaBeouf's character, Mutt from the, uh, the Crystal Skull movie was so poorly received, um, even though the ending of that film is, is very, is very great. Um, the fact that they, and again, spoiler, they killed him off because he served in the Vietnam War. But the fact that that was used as a way to actually comment on Indy's regrets with the past and someone who's always dealt with the past, I think was a pretty strong move and pretty bold move, I think, actually. Even if it was just a way for them to not have to deal with recasting Seal like, LaBeouf's character. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think this is, if you are like Indiana Jones film, I think it's a good enough time. I don't think it's a great film by any means, um, but I think it's serviceable enough. Um, three out of five stars. Now, whether or not this should have been nominated for original score, I mean, it does the thing. I can't say that I can't really hum any uh, theme from Indiana Jones film that that really stood out. Um, yeah, uh, th that wasn't the original original theme. So you know, good for you, John Williams. This definitely feels like a name check nomination, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, I would have loved to see something else, maybe a little bit more inspired. So his chassis would have been nice to see. Um, but yeah. 
in any case, a score uh, prediction for the score category. Um, American Fiction, Indiana Jones, Kills the Flower Moon, Oppenheimer, and Poor Things are the nominees. I think it could or in, and probably will be Oppenheimer. Ludwig Gordonson's score is just getting so much reviews that it's great. I would love to see uh, Flower Moon score maybe sneak in a win here. I mean, Robert Robertson, last chance to, to honor him, frankly speaking, and the kind of the drums that are just throughout. Um, and 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 how they use like the the musical and the instruments from the um, that that from the native people, I think is really great. Um, and poor things, Jerskin Fendricks, which is you know a newcomer to the to the scene. Um, his really bizarre. I can't. Believe, I don't think bizarre is the right word, but his very uh, eccentric score is probably the best way to describe it. Really fits the vibe of poor things. I think you know this is just, that definitely sticks in my head so much. So I will say any of the the three best picture nominees, I would love to see uh, win. Um, but it probably will be Oppenheimer. Okay, the final nominee that I watched for this episode, we have. Oh my god, I can't believe I'm ending this episode on, on this one, but Golda. So Golda, directed by Guy Nativ, uh, stars Helen Mirren, and so follows Golda Meir, the fourth prime minister of Israel, uh, during the 1973 Yom Kippur War. Um, it debuted at the Berlin Film Festival and was released by Bleecker Street on August 25th. It was nominated for Hair and Makeup. So, to its credit, Hair and Makeup, I think it's a well-deserved nomination because uh, I could not tell that it was Helen Mirren. Um under there if i looked at the um if i looked at the uh if i look at the side-by-side pictures there's no way that looks like uh helen mirren if i look at, compare it to golden mirror that definitely looks like golden mirror really great job by the hair and makeup team right that being said that is literally the only redeeming factor to this film um again maybe it's just because i am more familiar with you know American wars, and obviously this is a conflict in the Middle East, which I don't really know as much about. I'm sure people in Israel have a lot more strong feelings about the Yom Kippur War. Um, this, this this film did not do a very good job of setting up the... Con- the um, did not do a very good job of setting up the... Uh, the stakes of the battle and kind of like the conflict of the battle. The fact that most of the, the battle's action took place over headphones, which, by the way, I when I was watching this, I forgot to set up... Um, I forgot to set up subtitles. So that when there were sequences during the war battles that were set in, in, in Hebrew, I did not know what they were saying. I completely forgot that there were subtitles until like halfway through. I didn't want to go back and rewatch the other sequences with subtitles that I missed. So I just decided to watch the whole thing without subtitles. I could generally get the gist of what was going on. But even then, right, like, it was just really hard to follow the action, right? Which maybe that was part of the point. That's kind of her perspective on what was going on. Going on. But like... I don't know. This was just hard, a, a war film where I didn't personally care about the conflict going on. They didn't really go to do a good job of setting up what was the conflict about in the first place. What led to this conflict overall? Maybe this is meant for people who already know about the stakes of the conflict. Maybe it's supposed to generally go, oh, Middle Eastern crisis between Israel and the Arabs, right? Um, but I mean, that I feel, feel, think does does anything to that does does like does the service to that um you know even something like a fictionalized version of history like napoleon i think would be better than than this because at least in napoleon you got a sense of like okay what were the stakes of these battles that were going on even if you know maybe they weren't fully accurate right um yeah i mean it was just hard to really get invested in here and that's aside from all the stuff going on about you know the controversy of goldemir's legacy as someone who denies the existence of palestinians I'm not going to get into that on this podcast. That's not this kind of podcast. But suffice to say, it definitely did not make me any more endeared to the film in general. Um, and even without that, I would have just found it hard to just, I don't know. I can't really say I root for anyone in this film 
the the fact that you have Henry Kissinger as a presumed good guy or ally in this film uh, is not does not set you up for a good thing. Uh, shout out to Dakota from Convozoom Pod for giving that review on Letterbox. Definitely stealing that. Another good review from Letterbox. Um, Academy Award for most smoking in a film uh, by Regal Cinemas, um, which they gave this a five stars. But I think they gave literally everything five stars. Um, also very true. The smoking was very distracting. Yeah, this was just a slog to get through. Uh, thankfully, it's not that long. It wasn't that long of a film, so I didn't have to suffer too much. Uh, but it definitely felt longer. Uh, definitely gave this a one out of five stars. Um, so despite you know that being a bloodline film, I'm not going to, again, like I said, not going to give a nominate, uh, nomination prediction for Makeup and Hair. Uh, just because Society of Snow, I have not yet seen. That being said, I probably would have loved to see uh, Guardians of the Galaxy get the nomination instead of Golda here, but alas. Um, at least it's over. Um, anyway, as noted, I wasn't able to get to El Conde this week. Uh, um, so we should have that. I actually, I think I'm going to go ahead and put off watching El Conde until the international week, uh, which will be the last, the second to last episode before the nominations. Um, you know, just because it's technically an international film. And so I might as well, you know, do it with the other international films. I don't have enough uh, films to watch for that week. Anyway, um, we'll also be covering the documentary. So anyway, next week we're going to cover the documentary feature and documentary short categories since I'll be going to watch The Kill a Tiger this weekend and all the other documentaries I believe are available uh, online as well as Nine and Waipo again coming to Disney Plus anyway that wraps up this episode of the Oscars Death Race podcast let me know how your Death Race is going uh, over on Twitter at OscarsDRaceCast or via email at OscarsDeathRacePodcast at Zeno.com make sure you subscribe to the show on your podcast service of choice iTunes, Spotify and if you can leave a review or even to say with a friend who loves movies any of that is super helpful uh, those will be linked in the show notes below uh, alongside my Letterbox account no, no, uh, username NinjaBoy boy with an I also be sure to check out the Oscar Race and Oscars Death Race subreddits and the Academy of Death Racers Discord as well as AODR.net OscarsDeathRace.com and and deathracetracking.com. Music provided by Kevin MacLeod. Uh, his stuff is in contact.filmers.io. Editing production by Ninsmore Media. That's it for this week. This has been Paulo of the Oscars Deathrace podcast. And until next time, I'll be here trying to watch all the Oscar nominees or die trying. Mm-hmm.